Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and this is a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on The Avengers, the new Joss Whedon-directed super tentpole, Marvel, marvelous, uh, what do we even call it? The movie the movie of the summer. It's a culmination of five years of tentpole uh, franchises into a super franchise. Exactly. This is like some new word besides blockbuster has to be invented to, to encapsulate what this movie is. So joining me in the Slate studio is Chris Wade. Hi, Chris. Hello, podcast listeners. And you are an associate producer at Slate V, the video arm of Slate, and also very frequently the producer of these podcasts. So you're actually stepping into the other side of the glass. It's nice to be uh, from out from behind the audio board. Yeah, you're taping yourself. You're like, this is a, this is a total Chris Wade production. <laughs> I am almost the auteur of this podcast. Yes, especially because you're actually, you are going to end up talking a lot more than me in this one because I had you in because you are enough of a comics nerd and enough of a, a Marvel fan to actually be able to talk me through some of the mythology of this movie. Although I do want to make clear, should there be any sticklers out in the audience, that I have read much more about Marvel than I have actually read Marvel comics. But were you as a kid somebody who would who would go and get the new comics every week when they came out? Yeah, I I was in, always into comics and I had, was an infrequent reader whenever you know I saw them around I would pick up something based on the cover. So I always had like a small collection, but I never really entered deeply enough into the world or had a guide or, you know, I feel like maybe like an older brother who was really into it. I was just always like, oh, this is cool. I'll get something. It was cool. So I've, and I've always been fascinated with comic fandom and I guess fandoms in general, which is probably why I'm also a big Joss Whedon fan. Yes. And that was another reason I wanted to have you in on this is that I, I'm not a Buffy person. I'm somewhat familiar with Joss Whedon's movie work, but not really his TV stuff. And so maybe you can also sort of show me what he's doing this, with this franchise that's new. Because I have to say, and we usually start these off with some sort of evaluative comment before we get to spoiling, that I was a little disappointed in this movie. I had fun. It was plenty of fun seeing it last night, and I it sort of disappeared right after you see it, as these movies are, are meant to do. But I don't feel like Joss Whedon was really turning anything inside out the way that I had hoped that he might. And there probably is a limited amount of freedom that he has to do that with, with a monster production like this that has to set global records to make its money back. Um, yeah, I think that my initial reaction is pretty similar to that you know i wouldn't call it disappointed i think the movie's awesome it's really can we say badass in this podcast (laughs) it's really badass it's fun it's funny but um uh and also as we you mentioned this is kind of like a perfect storm for me and i think a lot of fans who are you know the the confluence of comic book people and buffy people is like a large overlap that then middle venn diagram is very uh large so I think that a lot of people are really excited for this. And it's not – yeah, it's not revolutionary. I think he's he helmed it as a technician more than a a sincere like Joss Whedon. This is a Whedon craft. How would that have been different, I mean, if you had, if it imagined it? Um, I feel like his – this was like the Whedon sheen applied to another DNA, mm-hmm. whereas something like Cabin in the Woods – which we're going to discuss later, I believe, uh, is more of like the Whedon DNA with another type of movie grafted on top of it. Um, So you see his flourishes here, but the basic story has already been told by five other directors 
you know, ranging from a weird collection of dr- directors from uh, John Favreau on Iron Man right. to um, Kenneth Branagh directing Thor. That's right. He directed Thor. And uh, Joe Johnston was the guy who directed the um, the Captain America movie. Yeah. So – and all these people are, like, directors you would imagine to have, like, you know, kind of their own personal craft. But all these movies look so – Similar, they look of the same world, which they're meant to, because you know Marvel's trying to do this whole building a movie Marvel verse, right? And so, th- so th- I think that was the hardest thing that the task that this movie had on its plate was sort of this is not only has to entertain people for two hours, two and a half hours. It's pretty long. I mean, if, uh, this kind of movie has to be long to give you your money's worth, right? As we were saying before the movie started last night, even if it's bad, at least there's going to be a lot of it, right? Mm-hmm. But how did you feel that th- that it, it did it at combining those universes? I mean, they're they're pretty different aesthetics right yeah and the question of how how much this has been like a top-down like i feel like there was some very good management at marvel studios they've like the ability to like keep all these threads going as independent franchises that come out you know years apart from each other but still aesthetic helmed by different people you know different casts you know a few crossovers like phil colson or is it Agent Coulson, I believe? The, yeah, Clark Gregg yeah. plays him. That's a, that's a great yeah. role. The colorless. He's been, yeah, he's been in a lot but of loyal them. agent. Yeah, um, that all feel you know everybody from John Favreau to Kenneth Branagh. You you would not imagine like are very much in the same filmic circle. You know, helming movies that feel very similar to each other. Um, so, I guess it's not, and it's not often that I'd say this, but kudos to Marvel as a movie studio for like having a singular vision that it's, you know, creating as a very lucrative business plan, obviously, but something that all these movies feel very much of the same universe. Yeah, I guess to me it seems more like kudos for the marketing, which is a little bit different (laughs) than, you know, kudos for for what you created. But let's talk about what does work and what is fun in this movie. And let's actually get to some very specific Mm -hmm. spoilage, because we just talked about this in the Slate Culture Gap Fest, and we felt like, oh, we have to stick to kind of the big ideas and themes. We don't want to give anything away. And in a movie like this, I mean, you're pretty sure that the good guys are going to win. That's not really what it's all about. But the stuff I want to spoil is, like, what makes the movie worthwhile? What are the things that stick with you? Great. Um... Well, I th- let's do some just like basic plot first, just so we have a, a bed. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. Rest yeah. On. Okay. Um, so, having seen all the movies leading into this, I would say that the immediate prequel to this, despite being the second to last one that came out, was Thor. The uh, events of this movie pick up pretty much right after the end of Thor. We see Loki, a demigod of chaos from the mythical realm of Asgard, which is this realm of Norse gods that exists within the Marvel universe. Having a, in his exile, um, in which he was banished from Asgard by Thor for trying to steal the power of the Tesseract, and source of limitless energy from the mythical Asgard realm. Which is basically like a glowing cube, about slightly larger than a Rubik's Cube. Mm-hmm. It's, it's totally the MacGuffin of this movie. Yeah. I don't remember the word Tesseract being really big in in, uh, in Thor, but yeah, Tesseract, I think, is the first possibly word said in this movie, right? Yeah. The first thing you see is the revolving cube, and then the Tesseract has awakened or something Yeah, like exactly. That. All I can think when I hear the word Tesseract is, is the Madeline Lingle book, A Wrinkle in Time. Do you remember that book? I've never read that book, but I'm sure I would love it. A Tesseract is very key, and I don't think it's an object in that book ex- as much as it's sort of like a... Um, a force. Uh, yeah, yeah, a means of, of transporting, you know, from one is place. It, is time the word to Tesseract used in that? It's, it's huge in that book. And it's so long ago that I read it that now people are going to have to write in and tell me exactly what it was. <laughs> but I know it was the thing that enabled them to put the wrinkle in time and travel. Um, so, yes, Thor has banished Loki from Asgard. Loki, Thor's brother, half brother, is pissed. 
he teams up with this race of alien, reptilian aliens uh, out in the deepest recesses of space to find the Tesseract and use it to bring their alien army to Earth to conquer. Everybody seems really bent on conquering Earth. We never really get the motivation of, like, why Earth, other than Loki just seems to like to screw people. I, but I kind of like that lack of motivation. I, I yeah. like that kind of villain in these movies, right? I mean, rather than sort of the calculating $1 million kind yeah. of Austin Powers villain, I like the villain who just likes to sow kind of chaos and, and havoc, a little yeah. bit like um, the, the Joker in, in The Dark Knight, right? And that's exactly how Tom Hiddleston, who I think is really wonderful as Loki, plays the role. And one of my favorite moments with him that occurs again and again is his kind of mischievous smile when he does something horrible. You know, it's yeah. not an evil cackle. It's not big. It's almost like a, a boyish grin of delight that he's just fucking stuff up. Yeah. And his, uh, I guess his motivation, as much as he states it, is that he wants to rule something he didn't get to rule asgard and thor he wants to rule something and humans are meant to be ruled which is a great a great backbone for a story about superheroes because you want to like have the everyman identify with the hero who emerges from you you know right right so he he has to set himself up as this kind of anti-democratic you know force as somebody who believes that all humans are actually just just meant to kowtow so so then at that point nick fury who hasn't helmed any i'm sorry you just keep saying helms i was saying (laughs) So at that point, Nick Fury, played by Samuel Jackson, who hasn't played the lead in any of these movies yet, but has sort of appeared as the the Avenger gathering, almost like the manager of the Avengers, right? Mm -hmm. He begins to reach out to the world's superheroes to try to make this super force to find the stolen Tesseract. Yeah. And those guys are, let's enumerate them. Um, In reverse chronological order, we have Iron Man, Tony Stark, played by Robert Downey Jr., who lovingly chews the scenery in every... uh, every scene he's in next would be uh the hulk uh who was edward norton in the last time we've seen him now played by mark ruffalo um to, who did a great job i felt like yeah that's one of my favorites and it's really clear that they're trying to reinvent it's really clear that they're trying to reinvent the hulk completely they're mm-hmm. essentially paying no attention to the to the angley hulk or the ed norton hulk right yeah. they're just bringing about this new bruce banner who mark ruffalo is perfect as a bruce banner he yeah. has exactly that rumpled professorial kind of feel that you want and he doesn't seem to belong in the movie which is kind of perfect mm-hmm. exactly uh and i think i'll we'll probably talk more about this later but i think the hulk ends up being one of the best parts of this film oh definitely um and then we get thor the uh, kind of haughty, you know, he is a god. He is the ruler of this de- this realm of deities. But as he's on here on a mission, he was taught to love Earth by Natalie Portman in uh, <laughs> Thor. Uh, Nobody does it better. Yeah, of last summer. So um, who is in a funny throwaway line like, don't worry, Natalie Portman's been moved to a safe location, <laughs> Thor. Uh, and the all-American boy... Uh, who is like the embodiment of this true spirit of heroes, Captain America. I'm very fond of Chris Evans as Captain America, and I actually liked that Captain America movie more than almost any superhero movie I've seen in the last yeah, five years. Yeah, that Captain America movie is like just like a great, it feels like a very 40s like comic book story. And I mean, Nazis are always a great villain, uh, which I think helped a lot. Actually, I think both Thor and or Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth do a great job of that, like, like almost naively good characters. I think they do that wide-eyed we are good and only good. Right. They're not the Dark Knight with some sort yeah. of a dark, deep flaw that they're hiding, right? They're just, yeah. just pure up, sunny side up good guys. So two new two new characters are introduced as well, at least new to the movies, which is the Black Widow, played by Scarlett Johansson, mm-hmm. and Hawkeye. Is that what he's called? The Jeremy Renner character? Yeah, Hawkeye. Who gets kind of short shrift in the movie, I feel. Yeah, Hawkeye starts the movie being uh, mind-controlled by Loki and being a 
a bad guy for the first half under the mind control of the chaos god. Um, and then halfway through, <laughs> in a very convenient turn, gets punched really hard by by uh, Black Widow and loses his mind control and then joins the squad. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of a raw deal for for Jeremy Renner because he, I think he was excited to be doing his first action movie and uh, and all he gets to do for most of the time is walk around glassy-eyed executing the, the will of Loki. And at the end, he gets a little bit of action with his, his bow and arrow, but I feel like he kind of got the worst deal of anybody. Although the... There are a few solid moments of uh, relationship between Black Widow and Hawkeye that I feel, and in the what J- what Joss Whedon brought to this movie that I think was like the key thing is like being able to see maybe each set of characters has like three minutes of like solid character interaction time throughout the entire thing because there's just like so many heroes you've got to get through, but each of those three minutes is like so economically used to like define who they are, define their relationships. You know, these two characters you haven't really seen any that much of get, like, a just enough backstory to be like, oh, I get your motivations. I see how you relate to each other and everybody else on the team. Yeah, I see an origin story for them. I could imagine somebody going back and making a prequel about the Black Widow and, and Hawkeye and what happened in Budapest, which they make a vague reference to. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, there's a there's a alluded to tormented past between them that I, that in its briefness was compelling enough to give those characters enough a little weight. Chris, let me stop you for one second for a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. So the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast is delighted to be sponsored by Audible.com. Audible offers more than 100,000 titles, fiction, nonfiction, drama, journalism, everything you can imagine, which you can play on any device, including whatever you're using to listen to us right now. And Audible has a special offer for Spoiler Special listeners. Sign up at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler, and you can get a 30-day free trial, a free audiobook, and also a free subscription to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal as a daily audio digest. So... With, a deal, with that deal, you can choose one free book from their vast selection of titles. And I have one to recommend because I was so fond of Mark Ruffalo in this movie. I looked up Mark Ruffalo on Audible to see if he read any books that they have. And I thought he might have read a whole audiobook. And he doesn't, but he does appear in a play on Audible that's by Kenneth Lonergan, the playwright who's something of – Mark Ruffalo has been something of a muse for him. He wrote uh, – two movies that Mark Ruffalo has appeared in, You Can Count on Me, which was sort of Mark Ruffalo's big breakthrough movie back in the 90s, and also Margaret, a movie which came out last year that Ruffalo has an important role in that, I don't know if you know the story of Margaret, but it was sort of championed in this great grassroots uh, cause by a bunch of, of film lovers who wanted this movie to be rescued from the obscurity that that its, uh, its development hell had kind of left it in. It's an interesting story, an interesting movie. I didn't love Margaret, but I do love Mark Ruffalo in it. So Lonergan, who's more known as a playwright than as a a screenwriter and director, has a play called This Is Our Youth that is starring Mark Ruffalo, Missy Yeager, and Josh Hamilton. I I believe they starred in the play in in L.A. in its premiere, and here they're reenacting it as essentially an audio drama, which is something I've never checked out on Audible. That seems exciting. So Kenneth Lonergan's This Is Our Youth with Mark Ruffalo is one great title that you can find on Audible. And you would sign up for that by using this URL. So Audible knows you're a spoiler listener. Audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Okay, so back to the Avengers. So, okay, so let's just walk through some of this elephantine story and try not to get too bogged down. But so Loki takes the Tesseract, the magic, magic... So Loki takes the Tesseract, the magic cube, and disappears with it. Nick Fury assembles the Avengers and gets them all up on this giant, massive aircraft carrier the kind of... The most impractical base of all times. A aircraft character, carrier that also flies 
as a giant floating fortress. Yeah, why would they wouldn't just hole up underground somewhere? I have no idea. Yeah, an aircraft carrier that was a submarine would seem more practical. So that was the aircraft carrier there using uh, Bruce Banner's knowledge of gamma radiation, which the Tesseract apparently emits to, like, try to track it down. They're using facial recognition to find Loki. Uh, Loki shows up in Germany. Uh, the Captain America and Iron Man go easily subdue him and bring him in. It's a little suspicious. There's some business with Thor showing up and trying to bring Loki back into justice in Asgard. Uh, of course, Iron Man and Thor have to fight because they want different things and they're assembling a team together, so they have to fight before they become friends. Yeah, the first hour has quite a bit of internecine superhero mm-hmm. struggle as they kind of try to decide, you know, the eternal schoolyard questions about who would beat who in a fight. And it kind of all culminates with um, a, a pretty solid, if a little confusing, scene where the, the whole team is together for the first time in that laboratory. Um, Basically arguing about why they're here, what the motivation of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Nick Fury is, what they each bring to the pro- the table. You know, this is where people get a few good jabs at Bruce Banner being like, oh, you're just an uncontrollable monster. And he's like, well, I'm only here as a scientist. And, you know, basically everybody getting each other's goat for 10 minutes before it is conveniently interrupted by the still mind-controlled Hawkeye attacking the flying aircraft carrier at Loki's bidding. Right. And so then there's a very long and I think pretty dull set piece of essentially one of the engines falling off the aircraft carrier and Iron Man has to try to fix it and Captain America helps him and the two of them start to bond. And this is a moment when I just sort of thought like this movie still has a long way to go. Mm -hmm. It's one of those kind of tentpole movies where every 20 minutes there has to be an intense CGI heavy battle sequence culminating in this really huge one that sort of evokes almost a Michael Bay sequence where essentially New York is being taken apart by these semi-organic, semi-robotic alien beings from outer space and and then it just really felt like it was a generic summer action movie at that point and I didn't see what all the character development had been for in the first place yeah from that moment on the movie pretty much devolves into a single extended battle sequence Loki escapes he disperses the team Uh, Thor ends up trapped in a containment unit like a a super jail cell that gets ejected from the ship and lands in a field somewhere. Hulk, in a pretty hilarious moment, gets carried away on a fighter jet and just falls off into nowhere. In the mo- a, a Hallmark Whedon-esque moment, Phil Coulson gets stabbed by Loki, the one character you just like really like and are sympathetic with. Why do you, I'm curious his- why you call that a Hallmark Whedon-esque moment. I did think that it was one of the more powerful things in the movie, right? Because there's so many super bodies having super horrible things done to them, and you kind of lose the sense of the vulnerability of any individual mortal person because they sort of aren't mortal, right? Mm-hmm. And there's at least two different moments when a character really should die, even by the logic of the movie. When, when Thor is ejected in that super jail cell, right? Yeah. And it falls like 30,000 feet to earth or something like that. And also when Robert Downey Jr. at the end, when when Tony Stark as Iron Man decides, oh, I'm going to sacrifice myself. Remember, he has yeah. that rogue nuke and he's yeah. going to go and put it in the space portal, whatever. And it's this moment that we're sort of seeing like he's learned to sacrifice and he's no longer just a selfish, arrogant guy. And yet he unproblematically makes it right. There's maybe 15 seconds when you think he might have been dead. And so... To get back to Agent Coulson again, there's just so many moments of impossible survival that when this regular, ordinary, not super guy who's who we've gotten pretty invested with because of his, you know, his his presence in all these movies, 
is suddenly stabbed to death and dies before our eyes, it, it's 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 pretty hard to take. And the superheroes really feel it too. Yeah, and that it becomes kind of the motivating factor for the third act of like, and that's where Robert Downey Jr. really steps up and is like, we are the ones who should be sacrificing ourselves because we are the the ones made to stop this. So tell me again, so why is this a, a core Joss Whedon kind of scene? Well, there are a few, as I said, there are a few uh, Joss Whedon glosses on this that I feel like fans will recognize. Joss is known for killing off the most beloved characters in the franchises, uh, some might say cruelly, but often to incredible dramatic effect, um, as, I might as well spoil everything, as uh, fans of Buffy might remember from the infamous Terra murder, uh, which kind of was one of the most wrenching moments of the scene. And it was like, you know, it's a character who is not one of the powered ones, who's beloved and has always been a force of good, just needlessly dying because of the conflict around them. That's like classic Whedon trope. A few other good things like a thing a thing that he does that I, I, I don't even know if I recognize until now where he kind of lets like what would a writing room phrase become part of the the show itself like an example from this from Buffy would be that the characters in this like gang of good do-gooders actually refer to themselves as the Scoobies in the show as like the Scooby gang um, which becomes like a thing or they actually refer to the bad guy of the season as the big bad as opposed to separate him from like any smaller threat and like one thing they did in this movie was the conveniently referring to the Hulk as the other guy so instead of you know, I feel like most Hulk movies, there's a lot of, um, you know, tiptoeing around like the monster I have inside right. me or like a beast within. And it's like literally like, no, there's Bruce Banner and the other guy. Right. Which is also that helps us get to know Bruce Banner because we see that that's his way of kind of avoiding. Right. He doesn't want to engage with his own anger and his mm-hmm. own Hulkdom. So he creates this kind of euphemism about the other guy. I actually I think that the Hulk, the way that it's handled, not just Ruffalo's performance and his casting, which is really smart, but. The whole way that story was handled was the closest this movie came to bringing anything fresh to, to the superhero world. I really liked the um, just basically everything involving the Hulk, how he looks when he turns into the Hulk, mm-hmm. the process of transformation, but also kind of not trying to make that conflict into this giant, bombastic, sort of Christopher Nolan-esque struggle within or something, but to make it sort of sort of comic and also maybe a little bit sexualized. It's not really direct, but there's a moment when he turns into the Hulk and he's chasing Scarlett Johansson around. It's not implied that he's chasing her to have sex with her, right? Yeah. He's trying to kill her, but there's something kind of sexy about the Hulk bursting out and, you know, chasing this woman in skin-tight cat suit around <laughs> an aircraft carrier. Yeah. I, I also think that um, the Hulk was probably the most fun character in this movie and they had there are a lot of great jokes at expense at the expense of the hulk and the you know a lot of great jabs at mark ruffalo who's like very game to be this guy who you like you know you can't get too angry but they all still seem to enjoy like messing with him well because there seems to be and this is maybe what you mean about the sort of in jokes of the joss whedon world but it seems to be agreed among the other superheroes that the hulk is both lesser than and greater than them right you yeah. can't control his his alter ego unlike them and so he's sort of unpolished he's kind of a brute he's kind of laughable because of his lack of control but also Ultimately, that makes him the strongest, right? Yeah. And there's several scenes where essentially nobody, including the gods from outer space, can can stand up to the Hulk when he's angry. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which was probably the best moment of the film. The Hulk finds Loki in Tony Stark's penthouse where he's holding up and using the Tesseract to keep this portal open that's letting this alien army evade. 
And uh, uh, Tom Hiddleston has, uh, like a lot of Loki speeches in the movie, this great, you know, you are you are nothing but emotion and rage, and I have control, and I am the one who is born to rule, and I am a god and powerful. And then, like, mid-word, just a giant Hulk hand comes out and grabs Loki's legs and then just swings him around like, like into a rag the floor, doll, right. into the ragdoll, and just totally wails on him for eight, ten seconds and leaves Loki in, like, a concrete divot in the ground just staring shocked out and... The Hulk in one of his few lines as the Hulk, which surprisingly voiced by Lou Ferrigno. uh, Oh, yeah? Yeah. Turns around and walks away from Loki just saying, I'm a god going, puny god. (laughs) It's true that this Hulk barely utters any words, right? Mm -hmm. He doesn't even say Hulk smash or anything. He's very, very low on on language. Uh, The moment that I thought you were going to cite, which I think is, is, is the movie's best joke probably, and it's also Hulk related, it's just that there's some moment, and I can't remember quite what they're doing, but the Hulk and Thor are taking somebody out together, right? They're collaborating on some kind of a bad guy wailing. And then we, we see them both sort of fly and, and land, and it's just the moment that one of them would deliver a wisecrack. I think Thor is even sort of starting to open his mouth to deliver a wisecrack. And just with a sort of burst of pure excess rage, just because he's got some extra anger, <laughs> the Hulk just reaches out and punches out Thor, and he falls out of frame. And it's a really silly slapstick moment, but the audience loved it. They went completely nuts. Yeah. And I feel a lot of people will say this, that Whedon was, you know, kind of almost so perfect. It was like an obvious choice to do this. He's great at handling, you know, multiple characters, a large group of characters, giving them equal weight, kind of being able to like with very brief touches evoke like bits of character that allow them to play off each other. A sense of humor in their interactions while maintaining the weight of the situation around it and a sense of humor within action scenes. It is, in the end, a not totally exceptional summer action movie, but for how much stuff is going on in it and how many how many movies of information it has to draw on, I feel like it clips along really nicely and it's it's consistently fun and consistently well-balanced. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you're starting to make, make the case in a way that convinces me, and I certainly wasn't bored when I was watching it, but I don't know. I, it, yeah, it's true that he sneaks in a lot of stuff around the edges, but there still is just such a huge elephantine there is still just such a huge elephantine thing that he has to sneak around the edges of. I just think he can't get out of what this movie is and what it ultimately is is a marketing-driven, yeah. you know, just something massive that has to appeal to the most possible number of people. There, there's only so much cleverness that can be can be snuck in around the edges. Yeah. And I think I had just like one more point that I wanted to hit, which is that I'm simultaneously compelled and turned off by – the Marvel's trend of interweaving all these tentpole blockbuster movies into one Marvel verse. Because one, on one hand, I find it compelling that you can kind of tell a story of an entire, the evolution of an entire universe of superhero characters across multiple movies, across multiple years, through many franchises. And one thing that happens in one movie shows up in another movie, and that characters can interact each other for, across. Uh, these temple franchises and although it's not you know that dynamically used yet I think it's like an interesting thing that they have to play around with but on the other hand it makes a lot of these movies feel like just business to get to another movie and that's like a kind of how I felt like Thor it just felt like an extended prequel to this movie and a lot of the plot of Thor was basically set up for what's going on in here and in a weird way, this movie felt like the second and third act 
of a movie instead of like a full movie. It's like you already have to know so much information going into the beginning of it that it it almost feels like an, an incomplete you know story. And there's also the question, of course, of where are they going to go from here? Now, do they do they start going smaller again and spinning things off? I mean, I did find myself kind of craving a Black Widow, mm-hmm. Hawkeye-centered prequel. Maybe that's the direction they go, is they sort of start shooting off tendrils in all different directions. Who knows? I mean, it's pretty obvious already that's having opened overseas to huge box office that they're going to be making as many more movies out of this, yeah. this Marvel bunch as they can. Oh, wait, as long as we're talking about future movies, you have to tell me what was up with the ending. Even you were not enough of a comics nerd to know. So there's, there's, a, there's a post-credit or mid-credit kind of um, sneak preview of yeah. what's coming next. And so some sort of red, scaly, grinning dude got a big reaction from the audience. Who was he? Yeah, so we uh, we go back to the alien race staring at a light in the distance, which we can assume is the direction of Earth or the universe that Earth is in. The alien master from this movie that was partnered with Loki basically saying, like, the humans were more resilient than we could have ever imagined. To attack Earth would be to court death. And then, yes, this huge, red, scaly, block-headed guy kind of looks to the camera and grins like a bring-it-on grin. I did have to look this up later. And the general consensus is that that character is Thanos, who is a uh, super-powered, super-smart brawler who becomes obsessed with the idea of death and controlling death and eventually goes on to, uh, in one of the larger arcs of maybe a mid-'80s or 90s Marvel storyline, controlling uh, the Chaos Gauntlet, which is a glove with these uh, powerful gems embedded in it uh, that gives him unlimited power. Ooh, the Chaos Gauntlet. I want to see phrase? the Chaos Gauntlet. Totally well, that's phrase. the thing. And Thanos is a great name for a, for a death-obsessed god because yeah. it comes from Thanatos, right? right? For death. And I actually believe that in Thor, in that if you remember Thor, there's like a hall of of powerful objects that the – what is it? The Tar – the Tesseract. The Tesseract was stored in this like hall – of of powerful objects, and I believe in the background you can see the chaos gauntlet sitting on a shelf somewhere. So it all see that's what the compelling part. It all comes back together in the end. Oh God, here we go again. Yeah. Thanos and the chaos gauntlet, summer of twenty thirteen. <laughs> okay, well, Chris, thanks so much for coming in Thank and taking it all me. apart with me. And please come and spoil another movie with me soon. Okay, great. Um, our producer and guest is Chris Wade. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Slate dot com, I'm Dana Stevens. And just a brief postscript, I realized as I was editing this all together that it was not, in fact, the Chaos Gauntlet, but instead the Infinity Gauntlet that Thanos wielded to gain omnipotence. Uh, Small distinction, but I realize how detail-oriented comics fans can be, so I have done my due diligence. Please do not yell at me on the internet. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.